ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me on Composure in the Box. Um, in today's episode, it's one that I'm very, very excited about. I have on the line with me um, Dr. Uh, Barry Schmeiser, who is the chairman of the Manchester United Supporter Club South Africa. Uh, Dr. Schmeiser, you can uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Um, good day, Fulani. Um I hope you are well and everybody listening are well and safe and Always a pleasure to talk about our beloved club, Man United. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you for joining me today, uh, Doctor. I think it, it would be prudent to on, to start by addressing your position as the chairman um, in Manchester United Supporter Club South Africa. I remember our brief conversation yesterday? I was telling you that I believe it's uh, the biggest uh, supporter club in uh, association in South Africa. You did seem to acknowledge but disagree with me at the same time. I don't want to focus on that. Uh, but tell us about your association. Well, I've followed Man United since I was six years old. So I'm giving my age away because that was 55 years ago. Mm. And we established an official supporters club in South Africa in 1990. So we're 30 years old as a supporters club. We're recognized at Old Trafford as an official supporters club. And for many years, unlike, I think, every supporters club in the world, our chairman was an ex-player, namely Gary Bailey. Mm -hmm. And um, after a while, um, we made Gary our honorary life president, and I stepped in the breach. But I think it's really just as a figurehead, we're all passionate United fans. That's great. That's great. And I think that that's why you're here. Um, Sports Hype is a platform where we give the fans a voice. Um, None of the people who write articles for us, uh, if you visited our blog over the recent days, uh, are paid journalists. So we are, our number one thing is to talk to the fans, hear the fans' perspective and share that around the world. So once again, thank you so much for for joining us. Um, Visiting your website, it's very interesting on the information you'd find. What I did love uh, was, you know, when you're a fan, I'm an Arsenal fan, and I, I, I hope you remember that. I did mention that too. I do. We, we all yeah. have our deficiencies, but we allow you that. <laughs> um, so basically, um, one thing that I did love about your website is almost every player that has donned the, the red jersey who has ever been blessed, I believe for any player it's a blessing to have a chant uh, created by the fans for you. Nowadays, the, the fan chants are not as creative as they used to be back in the day. I'm not sure if you agree with me or disagree. Um, they all sound the same um, across different clubs, but obviously different words are being used and different players' names are being sung. But back to the point about your website, you actually have gone out of your way to make sure that almost all the chants of everyone who's played for the Reds has, uh, is represented on your, on your page. Yeah, very Walk much so. That. Um, you know... There's a lot of tradition behind it. There are a lot of songs that were sung from way back in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And I think as fans, we embrace that as a tradition. You know, I think that Mm. like several other clubs, Man United, we don't look at as a football club, but really as an institution. There's There's a lot of traditionalism. If you look at the fans lucky enough to be match going fans, Many yes. of them have had season tickets for more than 50 years. You can't even get onto the waiting list for season tickets. They pass down in families. So there's a lot of tradition with respect to that. 
Of course, mm-hmm. social media has changed and has shifted the goalposts because I think nowadays a lot of the songs are quite clever, but they they base three songs. Um, yes, for example, yes, yes. Um, the younger listeners will know better than I, but the Robin van Persie chant was based on a song by the White Stripes. Which one? Uh, the one from Arsenal or the one, the one you gave him when you stole him? No, from? the one from United. Van Persie, oh, okay. van Persie excelled at United. At Arsenal, he was a kind of... After okay, being stolen. He was an okay player, <laughs> but we turned him into a world-class <laughs> player. Um, so, you know, so fans borrow other fans' chants. Yes, um, yes, yes. And I think the modern-day fan is very different from the old-fashioned fan. We have to move with the times. But mm-hmm. social media has has changed all that. Thank you, thank you for your for um, your opinions. If, if I may add to that, um, go a ahead. A lot of um, United fans who have been lucky enough to go to Old Trafford, there are a couple of pubs in proximity to Old Trafford. The most famous one called the Bishop Blaze, and on any mm-hmm. match day, no matter what time the kickoff is, that pub about five hours before the game is absolutely crammed with fans who are chanting songs from yesteryear, from today, and it really brings across the traditions more than anything else. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, talking about you, you've mentioned quite a bit, um, and I'm sure our listeners will understand that you you, you feel very proud, um, and you there's also a sense of belonging when you say the fans who have been lucky enough to go to Old Trafford. I don't want you to tell me about your visits just yet, but tell me, I think I saw on your website as well, you also offer assistance for fans based in South Africa. I'm not sure if it, if it expands to greater uh, to the greater continent, uh, but an opportunity um, that you give them to visit uh, Old Trafford. Yes, let me talk me through that. Let me explain how that works. And mm-hmm. I want to emphasize that it works like this based on the insistence of Man United, the actual club. These are not rules yes. set down by our supporters club. Okay. So in order to qualify for a match-going ticket as a supporters yes. club, you need to have a certain number of your supporters registered with the official Man United club in the UK. Now, okay. they keep changing the required amounts. At one stage, it was eight fans per ticket, then 15. I'm not quite sure of the exact amount. Our club secretary, Ethel Sleeth, would know better than I with respect to Lovely lady, Ethel. Yes, Yes, lovely lady. Fantastic. And Mm -hmm. based on that, we are allocated a certain number of tickets per game. And we have a certain period of time in which to take those up. If they're not taken up, they go into a general pool for the rest of the world. So if, if you're not affiliated to an official supporters club, and you are a member of Man United, your chances of getting a ticket are exceptionally remote. If you think Mm -hmm. about it, there are 75,000 plus minus seats at Old Trafford. Um, There, I believe, are 61,000 season ticket holders. So it's Mm -hmm. a rather small pot. But we have a couple of dozen tickets available to us. So people are able to join our club Um, By doing that, they will join the official United club and they then have access to tickets on a first-come, first-served basis. And I'll Mm -hmm. stress at face value of the tickets. There is no profit to be made. There are a number of websites out there that um, people can look at getting tickets, resales, etc. 
ours are guaranteed and they're at face value. Okay, that's fantastic. It's good to know. Uh, thank you so much for, for answering that. And I hope um, this podcast not only gets to grow the grow your supporter base, but also just getting people to understand that there is a way of doing it um, on a, a bit on a cost effective uh, basis, but also, you know, um, but also there are rules that apply to it. Thank you so much. Sure. Um, before we go ahead, I just want to put it out there. You are on Twitter. Uh, at Doc United, yes, correct. That's correct. You're on Twitter, Doc United. So, yes. if there's anyone who wants to give you a follow, uh, they can do so. So, let's now focus a little bit on you. Um, tell me, what's your earliest memory of Man United? You said you were six years yes. old, fifty-five years yes. ago. My earliest memory mm. is my grandmother giving me a card that was cut out from the back of a cereal box of Dennis Law. Now, of course, Dennis mm -hmm. Law is one of the greats that ever played for Man United. And those that followed in the 60s and those that know the history of the club will know of the trio referred to as the Holy Trinity, Bobby Charlton, yes. um, George Best and Dennis Law. So that was my earliest recollection. And then just reading in magazines about United, because, of course, in those days we didn't have television in South Africa. But um, my grandparents lived in Bulawayo, where, of course, there was television. And I had some early glimpses of United in the 60s, of course, in black and white and recorded television. And mm -hmm. I noticed a long-haired fellow called George Best. And that is something that I'll never forget, seeing the swagger that he played with. And in fact, a couple of years later, in 1967, I had caused to visit London with my parents. And on the day that we arrived, lo and behold, the newspaper headlines were full of the fact that United had beaten our biggest enemy, Liverpool, at Anfield. And George Best had scored both goals. And there was this iconic photograph of him, long-haired. They called him the fifth Beatle at some stage. And yes, he, had a, he was carrying one of his boots in hand. It's a very famous photograph and that was it that was united for me I already knew about them but that's where the love affair really started you know it's 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 it's, it's very funny that um he was called the fifth beetle do you think it was to uh stick a knife in the liverpool fans uh liverpool being the city where the originals were from i don't think so i think it was really from mm -hmm. a celebrity point of view because of course in, oh, the, okay. in the 60s the beetles were the hottest property in the world Mm -hmm. And I guess, um, I don't like comparing, but I think if you look in the modern era, probably David Beckham was the, the one who stood out in sure. terms of celebrity status. And George mm -hmm. Best stood out like that. And bear in mind, in the days where there was no social media. Interesting. Interesting. Um, thank you so much for, for that. Um, you, you have an instance, you have an interesting story, sorry, um, on how you've managed to get access to your beloved uh, club, to your beloved institution, as you, as you refer to it. Uh, do you mind to just tell me again? Because I want to hear it again, and I also want our listeners to, to hear about sure. it. I think, you know, in this day and age, it's all about who you know and how you go about things. So if you think about it, it's probably iniquitous that there are probably people who live within a stone's throw of the stadium who have never been to see them play, and here I live on the other end of the world, and I've been privileged. But the first time I ever watched United live was in that 1967. So I watched George Best play as a, as a kid. 
But my first visit to Manchester was in 1983. I'd completed my internship and I was, um, I had a few months free before starting what was then national service, which of course was compulsory. So I garnered some funds together after working in one of the emergency rooms and took a trip overseas. Now, what I did at the time, Gary Bailey was the incumbent goalkeeper at Man United and his late father, Roy, had played here in South Africa and coached. And what I did is I just opened the telephone directory, which I'm sure is a book foreign to many of the younger people listening here. And <laughs> what color was it back then? Was it yellow? It, that was the yellow pages. But this, the, yes, yes, okay. But um, in there was Roy Bailey. So mm-hmm. I got his phone number, called him up, didn't know him from a bar of soap told him that I was a big United fan going to Manchester and was there any chance that I could go and meet Gary and possibly watch the team training. Um, of course, in those days, no internet. Um, so he had a parcel of letters that he asked me to take. So off I went armed with Gary's phone number and contacted him and met up with him at the then training ground, which was called the Cliff. Now, mm-hmm. If you look at the training facilities today, they are state-of-the-art, they're magnificent, and United only moved into them at the turn of the century. The cliff was the training ground that United trained at from just after the Second World War. It was rudimentary, to say the least. But I met Gary over there. Um, I had the opportunity of watching the team training, and at the outset, I'd just like to say what a fantastic fellow he is. Absolute gentleman, but I'm sure we'll, we'll speak more about him later. And mm-hmm. um, a guy that's often gone under the radar because there are only three goalkeepers that have played more games for United in the history of the club. So Gary was my contact over there. He furnished us with tickets for a couple of games, which we might talk about later. And more importantly, he introduced me to a couple of guys that worked behind the scenes in terms of liaison with supporters clubs. So when we established our supporters club over here, these were our go-to people. Now, in those days, there wasn't the same security that there is today. Members of the public could go to the training ground. There were barriers set up that you had to stand behind. But the training was closed the day prior to a match. And these fellas kindly furnished me with a letter that enabled me to actually go pitch side. And they became our liaison over the years. If one used to go there, um, some of us were lucky enough to be able to meet players um, after matches. I was lucky enough to be given a a ticket to go into the players' lounge, and it was really terrific. Um, But then the club moved training grounds um, into a really state-of-the-art facility in Carrington, which was completely closed to the public. It's in a nature reserve, and I was unable to get there for a couple of years. But then a game changer, lo and behold, um, coming to see me as a patient. And I want to stress that from a medical point of view, he is completely healthy and the most wonderful guy. And that was Carlos Queiroz. Yes, we spoke about that. And Carlos came to see me. At my office, there are a number of framed Man United items. And he'd been fired by Bafana at that time. We didn't say one word about football. It was a completely cordial interaction. And lo and behold, a couple of weeks later, I saw that he was instilled as Fergie's assistant manager. 
So I got on the phone to him. I had his cell number um, by virtue of the fact that he had to fill out his details in my filing system. And I called him. He was in Manchester at the time. And I asked him why he didn't even mention any of, of this to me. And his comment was that he was at a sensitive time of negotiations, so he couldn't say anything. But then came the magic words. When I next come to Manchester, make contact with him. And we forged a fantastic friendship subsequently. And this really got me into the inner sanctum. I was able to go to the new training ground. I was able to have lunch with him and his fellow coaches, including Fergie, on many, many occasions. And, you know, it was an absolutely privileged position to be in. Um, the one maybe downside was the games that I went to while he was there. He very kindly gave me a ticket to sit in the director's box. But a seat in the director's box means going in jacket and tie, no team shirt and behaving yourself. Whereas when you're sitting or standing on the Stretford end, you can rave like a banshee and shout expletives at the referee all you want. But that's really where it all stemmed from. Great, thank you. And wonderful story. Um, tell me about your last visit. When was the last time? What's the last game you've watched? At, uh, at the last game I watched live was, in fact, United's opening game of the season, this season against Chelsea, the 4-0 victory. And little mm, did we mm. realize at that stage that um, what we were headed for. So any plans, obviously, to go to subsequent games at this time of the season have gone up in smoke. But there are far more important things that we need to worry about in the world at the moment. Well said, uh, Doc. Well said. Um, I've, I've heard through the grapevine that you have quite the United memorabilia. Um, the good thing is no one knows your address. So <laughs> please do tell me what are your favorite, what are your three favorite pieces of, um, of memorabilia? Um, sure. There are lots, but I'd say number one, um, when George Best came to play in South Africa, he played here in 1974 after he'd left United. I actually wrote to him and he responded to me. So I've got that brief note that he wrote to me. That is a treasured possession. Um, I've got, by virtue of being gifted to me by the wife of one of our supporters who unfortunately passed away, a team sheet of signatures of the Busby Babes. And for my 50th birthday, when my wife asked me what I wanted as a gift, I nonchalantly mentioned I wanted a shirt. Um, that's easy, she said, not realizing that it was a shirt signed by the 99 treble winners. So I guess those wow. are my most treasured possessions. And I'd probably throw in as a fourth, I have a ball that was signed by the 1968 European Cup winners. This was available as a limited edition to the public, and I was lucky enough to get one. I, I must say, you, you are a very, very... Uh, blessed man um, in the realm of Manchester United. I hope some of those blessings are spilling over to you, to you, to, to your real life and your practice. But you are you are living the dream. No question it about way. it. Absolutely privileged to <laughs> to have done all those things. Privileged. And Doc, um, the whole world knows how much of a legend Sir Alex Ferguson was. I think I saw a picture on your Twitter. Um, I think it was him yes. in his younger days. Before his yes. hair was grey, um, you wear yes. the picture as well. Uh, your hair was very was jet black. Um, I'm sure it's a bit grey now. Uh, but talk me through the glory days of Manchester United for you, no, under the figure. All right, era. I think that 
You know, when you talk of United's glory days, of course, the Fergie era is the one that comes to the fore because that's the era in which we won the most trophies. But as a supporter, there were glory days in the days of Matt Busby. There were very limited glory days in the hiatus between Busby and Ferguson. And of course, subsequent to Sir Alex, there haven't been that many glory days. But nevertheless, we remain very, very proud United supporters. Now, when when Fergie joined United, um, he came there with a fantastic reputation because he'd taken Aberdeen to winning the double in Scotland, to beating Real Madrid in the European Cup Winners' Cup, and really breaking the shackles that Celtic and Rangers had held over the Scottish League for many, many years. So he came with a great reputation. But in this day and age, he probably wouldn't have lasted because he won his first trophy only in his fourth season at United. But what he did is he galvanized the club. He brought in the youth. He had uh, much confidence, you know, the so-called class of 92, which I'm sure we'll talk about. And he had a knack of signing, you know, of some fantastic signings. Of course, there were some that got away. Um, you look at a player like John Barnes, who United had the opportunity to sign. He was one who got away. And you look at a couple of players that didn't make it at United, but went on to do great things. And we're talking in the, in the 80s and 90s, players like Peter Beardsley and David Platt. So but he had a keen eye for this. And what he did was he galvanized the team. He made them believe that they were the finest team on earth. And in fact, if you look at his last season, his 13th Premier League win, the 2012-13 season, that United squad was, I think some would regard possibly as mediocre, although I think it was a lot better than that. But it was all about belief. And I think that Old Trafford was a fortress. Um, teams were intimidated to come there. Teams were intimidated to play against United. And he made them believe that they were the greatest. I think it's critical um, just to lose a focus on your last on the last part. Um, that you've mentioned. I think the mentality around the man, um, the confidence instilled in his charges. Um, and I actually had a, I did a podcast with a friend of a good friend of mine who was a United fan as well. We're talking about that, uh, that 1999 Champions League final. And, you know, something that we touched upon was those two late goals gave birth to yeah. Fergie time as we knew it, in the sense that that never-die attitude, there was always a reference point. Something that I feel at, um, at Arsenal we kind of lack, when the chips are down, there aren't many reference points that a manager can still use and say, remember that time, those men, those 11 men on the pitch rescued that game yeah. and won us um, and got us the, the, the elusive treble. And, you know, and, and I think for Sir Alex Ferguson, and maybe that's one of the biggest reasons why post his, uh, after his career, he toured many universities talking to MBA students Correct. about leadership, um, about, uh, you know, about tradition, about corporate, which is something that's quite big right yes. now, corporate culture, culture of fits and all of those things. And those are things that we see in his sides. And I also touch on, you know, you mentioned how um, mediocre slash average that team could be called. In that podcast with my friend, we also zoned in on, remember the, the time you beat Arsenal 8-2? Very, it was a very sad time for me because I think that was the first time 
I had bought an um, an original replica jersey from uh, from I think it was Nike at that time from a Nike store. Um, it was delivered. I was in Zimbabwe at that time in varsity. It was delivered to me, and I went there proudly wearing my jersey, and we we were smashed. But the long and short of it is, when you look at that team sheet, there's no way those eleven players who were on the pitch that day um, should have put through an amazing um an, an amazing result like they did amazing for united of course but horrific for for me and uh yes. my fellow arsenal fans but uh it's just just to show the class of the man talk me through i i, I don't know how to put this question but just talk me through sir alex ferguson you know in your yeah. interactions with him how why was it so easy for him to lift those players because many of the years you've mentioned that a lot of players post united have had good careers but I would also count at that point and say a higher percentage of the Fergie players after United failed to even touch uh, what Fergie had managed to get out of them. Uh, the likes of Cleverly, uh, the Brazilian fullback brothers, um, Nani to an extent. Um, it's quite a bit of, it's quite a long list, but looking at the, Anderson, for example, but looking at those men in the, in the red uh, in the red jersey, they were, yes. they were formidable yes. players. Just well, if I, can, if I can, if you don't mind, another anecdote. On, on, as many as on, you as on you can one handle, of my please. Visits to the old training ground. So, in fact, this was in 1998. Man United had just signed Mikhail Silvestri from Inter Milan, and Quinton Fortune mm-hmm. was playing at United at the time. And I was chatting with him, of course, being fellow South Africans. And when the training session was over, I asked him if he wouldn't mind giving me a lift um, back into town, which he duly did. So I was seated in the back of the car. Quinton was driving, and his passenger was Mikhail Silvestri. And Silvestri, despite being French, spoke very good English. And I was just eavesdropping on the conversation. So he was asking Quinton um, pointers, you know, the manager, what do you do, how do you approach him, etc. And I remember so well Quinton saying to him, Whatever you do, don't pee off the manager. That is rule number one. And I think that just epitomized (laughs) the absolute respect. The other thing that I noted on some of the occasions in being in the corridor outside the players' lounge or in the players' lounge, if Fergie walked past, there was immediate silence, immediate. And, you know, he led by example and he led by respect. If you look at his background, he's got no business degrees, he's got no formal education, but he was a leader. And I think that is something that's inbred. The training sessions, Mm. he stood on the periphery. He didn't design the training sessions, his coaching staff did. But standing on the periphery, periodically he'd call one of the players over, whisper something to him. And, you know, when you you, um, read accounts by the players or listen to them in interviews, His team talks were often very, very simple, to the point. But the major thing was fear of failure, I think, amongst the players and going the extra yard. And in fact, if you watch that Champions League final of 99, in the 88th or 89th minute, United are 1-0 down. They've not yet got the corners that got them the goals. But Ron Atkinson was one of the pundits. Mm -hmm. And he made the comment with one minute to go, Point. If United score, they're going to win the match. And that was really what they instilled in everybody, this never-say-die attitude. It wasn't acceptable. 
And of course, he was very clever because he had his lieutenants on the field. And of course, Roy Teen was his first lieutenant on the field. Wonderful. No, I think I think you 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 you've summed him up. Um, it would be very hard to find someone else to sum him up, um, based on the on how he led and the the respect that he seemed to garner, not only uh, in Old Trafford circles but also in football uh, in general. Uh, but just to ask you, where does the man rank for you? Um, you have extensive football knowledge. Um, I'm. My, my dad is your age, so obviously my knowledge is, is limited. Um, I start from the era of probably the 2000s, yeah. from 2000 go, going forward yeah. to now. But for you, from, every, from, from all the football that you've been exposed to, where does the man rank for you? Uh, ranks for you. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, you'll get two answers with respect to this. Um, some of the much older supporters will tell you that Sir Matt Busby would rank as first because he came into a club ravaged by the effects of the Second World War. Um, the stadium had been bombed. They had to rebuild the stadium and he had to rebuild the team. And he's the first that concentrated on youth, the so-called Busby Babes. And they tragically were decimated at Munich in 1958. And 10 years later he achieved what to him must have been the Holy Grail, namely winning the European Cup. In Matt Busby's reign, United won the league five times. Um, In Fergie's reign, United won the league 13 times, together with the Champions League on a couple of occasions. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, look, it's neck and neck. I'd probably say that Fergie, for me, is the greatest manager that's ever drawn breath. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. I was expecting that response, but I, I love the trip that you you took uh, myself and the listeners on uh, before your response. Um, I'm sure your eyes lit up a little bit when you mentioned the following term, class of 92. Yeah. Um, let's dwell on that a little bit. Right. Right. So the class of 92, a lot of credit must go to the um, the youth team coach, Eric Harrison, who was one of the unsung heroes at United. They brought him across from Everton. And he, I'm told, I never met the man, but he ruled with an iron fist. He passed away not all that long ago. But what he did was he instilled in the young players the ethos and the ethic that Fergie was instilling in the first team. And, of course, they're a legendary group. And, of course, there's the legendary saying by Alan Hansen, ex-Liverpool player, um, you won't win in anything with kids. He said that at the beginning of the 95-96 season and United went on to win the double. So they were an amazing group of players. There are a couple of players that played in the class of 92 that don't really get much mention and I think are deserving of a mention. Of course, when we talk about the class of 92, it's Ryan Giggs, it's David Beckham, it's Nicky Butt, Paul Scholes and the Neville brothers. Mm-hmm. But in that class of 92, arguably the best player was a chap called Ben Thornley. And Ben's um, career was tragically affected because he suffered a horrific injury playing for the United Reserves against Blackburn. And he came back never the same player. And in fact, he moved on from United to Huddersfield and Aberdeen subsequently. But he was a great, great player. 
Um, the other was Keith Gillespie, who, of course, was sold to Newcastle in part um, as part of the Andy Cole transfer. Also yes. a fantastic player. Um, in that team as well was Robbie Savage, who never got a game for United, but of course had a pretty distinguished career at Leicester and Blackburn, and more recently as a dancer on Strictly Come Dancing as a pundit. <laughs> so it was really an amazing team. Thank you. And, um, you know, and um, how did you how did you deal with the, the, the leaving of Fergie, his decision? Um, oh, was, uh, we, we were mortified. You may remember that he initially announced his retirement in 2002. He was going to leave the club, but then his family convinced him to stay. I, in fact, was one of the folk who, when United won the treble, I said he should retire. How could it get any better than that? Little did I know how many more trophies he'd win, and it shows you how much I know. And I have to say that we had a lot of discussions as to who would take over from Fergie when he retired. I would love my friend Carlos to have taken over from him because it would mean I would still be able to be sitting in those fancy seats. But we earmarked <laughs> David Moyes. We all thought that David Moyes would be the one who would take over from Fergie. And of course, the period that United are going through at the moment really reminds me of the period United went through in, in between the two, I call them dynasties, the Busby and the Fergie dynasty. Mm -hmm. But uh, walk me through the David Moyes. Um, obviously, I'd like you to close up with what, what it was that made his name come up. But firstly, tell me, um, his name in your conversations, did it come up before the press clippings and the press yes. started highlighting? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Firstly, Fergie tried to get David Moyes as his assistant at the time that he got Carlos Queros. Carlos was not his first choice. David Moyes was. But David Moyes took a manager's job at Preston, and then he went on to Everton. And, of course, he did very well at Everton. Very, very well. But doing well at Everton, with no disrespect to any Everton fan that may be listening, is not the same as doing well at United. There's much, much bigger spotlights at United and a much bigger demand. But I think Fergie in David Moyes saw a lot of himself, sort of working class, Scottish. And Moyes made a lot of very, very basic errors. I remember his first interview with the club. He looked like a deer in headlights saying that he was in awe of the club. Now, that's not the message that you send out. And his biggest mistake was he got rid of Fergie's entire backroom staff and he brought in his journeyman backroom staff from Everton. Guys like Steve Round, Lumsden and Phil Neville as a first team coach. And this was a huge mistake. And the other thing is, I don't think he endeared himself to the players with some of the rules that he wanted to change with respect to diets. And when you take seasoned professionals like Nemanja Vidic, who was there at the time as captain, and you say to him, Watch a video of Phil Jagielka at Everton. These are not the right messages to send out. So it was hardly surprising that he got shafted after just a few months. But what, what were your expectations for Man United post-Fergie? Well, you know, Fergie left um, a team with an average age of 25, Premier League champions. You expected them to bat on from there, but the style of football changed 
Um, and I think there was disharmony. Well, there was must have been disharmony at the club. No question about it. All right. Okay. Thank you so much for for that one. Um, for from my perspective, I feel um, that uh, you know the gentlemen that have come after Fergie have a very very huge task, uh, especially maybe the first two um, after Fergie. Um, and with the current man, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, the hero of uh, the 1999 final and the hero of many other games. He was a scorer of very crucial games in his career with, with, your, with your beloved team. I feel that he still has to live up to what Fagy built, but it can't get much worse than what his predecessors uh, after Fagy had put them. If I was to ask you to rank uh, the last four managers, um, how, how would you rank them? Best to worst. (laughs) Um, Best to worst. It's a really difficult one. Um, I would have to, based on results, you'd have to rank. uh, You'd have to rank Mourinho as first because he won a couple of trophies. Mm -hmm. Um, Van Gaal also won a trophy in the form of the FA Cup. Um, You could argue that David Moyes won a trophy because United won the Community Shield in his first game in charge, but that's Mm. hardly a trophy. You know, when you win the Community Shield, you say it's a trophy. When you lose the final, you say it's a, a useless match. It means nothing. Mm-hmm. But I think that Solskjaer will be given time. And if you look at his record at United, it kind of goes in three phases. He started off unbelievably when he was the caretaker manager. The team plummeted as soon as he got the job. And prior to the lockdown, United were coming back. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we were pretty excited as to what's going on. He's made four signings. His four signings have all been excellent. And we were looking forward to better things. But, um, you know, Van Gaal and Mourinho were very, very disappointing. Both excellent managers in their day. You know, I remember in terms of Louis Van Gaal, we were at the 2016 Cup Final, of course, in which United beat Crystal Palace. At the end of the game... The news filtered through that it looked like Mourinho was going to be appointed and Van Gaal was going to be fired. Well, it's a horrible thing to say, but as supporters, we were happier with that than having just won the cup because we weren't enjoying the style of football that we were being, um, you know, we were being exposed to. And then Mourinho, I don't know, I think Mourinho has lost his mojo to a degree. Um, he's a little bit of a narcissist. I think at Chelsea... That debacle with the club doctor when he went ballistic when she Eva. insisted that yeah when she insisted that Hazard be withdrawn in a game um, he doesn't endear himself he hasn't endeared himself to the press and I think that Mourinho orchestrated his own departure um, with respect to that he seems to you know this old cliche of losing the dressing room lasting for three years at each club that he goes to but the guy's a serial winner. And I expected him on joining Tottenham for Spurs to really improve, which they haven't. Mm-hmm. And I think Mourinho is going to have problems in terms of getting subsequent jobs. But he is a serial winner. And I do believe that Solskjaer, it's just my thoughts, will be given time. And of course, the supporters, we fickle. When the club's doing well, we praise the guy. When the club's doing badly, we want him out. But in Solskjaer, I think one sees a lot of the Ferguson methods. And it was always stated by Ferguson, even when Solskjaer was still a player, that he had no doubt that he'd go on to be a successful coach because 
He used to come on as a substitute very often and he used to get with the flow of the game immediately, reading the game well. Of course, you remember an iconic game when we beat Nottingham Forest 8-1 away. Um, in, that, you know, in that time, Colin York with a strike pair. Solskjaer scored four goals in 10 minutes. Mm. So he was a clinical player. And I think he's trying to instill the old ethos and ethic into the club. I thought at one stage he'd be, um, he'd be fired. But given the recent crop of, or the last crop of results, um, I think that they'll stick with him and hopefully go on to better things. So if, 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 if I can say, based on what you said, I read Mourinho up top, even though he messed himself over. Solskjaer, second, LVG, then Moyes. On, uh, on, resu- on, on results. On results. But if you oh. ask me in terms of good for the club, I would probably go um, Solskjaer first and the other three on parity with each other. They were not a good fit for the club <laughs> at all. All right. Um, you've mentioned where it went wrong for Moyes. You've also touched on uh, Mourinho. Where did it go wrong for, for Louis van Gaal? I think Van Gaal played a completely different style of football. Van Gaal's style of football was at all costs keep the ball, pass it around 140 times and then try and create something. And, you know, United are known, you know, they talk about playing in the United way. What is the United way? Well, the United way is with swashbuckling wingers, crossing the ball, scoring lots of goals. You know, you score three, we'll score score four. But it's a bit of a naive approach. It's a very, very different game today. There's so many statisticians around. Um, There's so much related to resting players, diets, things like that. And I don't know, if you look at... If you look at books written by some of the older guard, you know, there's the feeling that players today are a little bit soft compared to years gone by, but it's a different world. If you look at injuries, there are more injuries in training than there are in games mm-hmm. because training methods are different. I hesitate to mention this, but if you go back to the great Liverpool teams of the 1970s, there was a particular season where the league, in those days, the league was 42 games, not 38 games. But in one particular season, Liverpool won the league using only 14 players. Now, that is unbelievable, playing on pitches that were pitches that were muddy. And in those days, there were a lot of hard men around. The tackle from behind wasn't illegal. There was very little, if any, diving in the game. Um, so it was a very different game. If you watch a recording of a game from the 70s, with today's referees, there'd probably be about four players left on the field at the end of the game. So it was a very, very different game then. And, of course, it's financial. Football is a big business. You know, when you see the player kissing the badge of the club, I'm not convinced that he's in love with the club. They're in love with the paymaster. Um, I've, I've heard no truer statement uh, the, whole, the whole of today. And this is, it's 1 p.m. Um, so I just want to find out from you. You've mentioned about the money aspect. Uh, can we just scoot, quickly scoot up towards the, the board? Um, how much is Ed Woodward to blame for the poor recruitment, uh, recruitment that has plagued Man U post Sir Alex Ferguson? Right. So this is, a, this is a very contentious issue. And I'll make a contentious statement. And that is, I believe very little that is written in the press. Okay. You know, on, on average, United are associated with about 150 players every season. And, you know, I think that journalists create these things to sell newspapers. 
You wake up one morning, this guy's coming. You know that two days later, there'll be an article saying the transfers hit a snag or his agents talking to another club. And the agents are the scourge of this because they talk up a game to get as many transfers for their clients as possible because each transfer is a fortune of money. Mm -hmm. Now, United are one of few top clubs that don't have a director of football. And this has been leveled at a at big criticism. And we are not certain as to how much of a role Ed Woodward has played. So I don't have unreliable authority from anywhere as to what he's done and what he hasn't done. But it would appear that him and one of his co-board members, a guy called Matt Judge, have a lot of say in transfers. But mm -hmm. I don't say this on any authority. And I don't believe that they should have a say. And, you know, when Fergie was there, his CEO was David Gill. And they formed a fantastic partnership. And unfortunately for United, Gill and Ferguson retired at the same time. So this saw Ed Woodward, really a financier and businessman, mm -hmm. brought into the fold. And I would hate it if Woodward is making these football decisions, because quite frankly, I don't think he's capable of doing that. But uh, with the, I do understand what you mean. Um, Arsenal have suffered from that quite a bit. I think when I went to bed uh, early this morning around 2 a.m., were linked with a centre-back from, uh, from Rams and um, the striker from Valencia. And I know by Tuesday that would shift as well. But, uh, I, you know, I understand that aspect. But for me, I mean, those that have come through the door, uh, be it those who are being, who are being bred and blooded for first-time football and some of those who are coming in as squad players, Many have not come and kicked on from United. Maybe it's the revolving managerial door that has made some players fail. But one can say that some of the players that have come to Man U have been, um, have been poor and have gone against the identity that Fergie had left, of course, which was working with what you have and making it work. Very much so. So I think if you look at some bad decisions, have a look at a guy like Fellaini. When Fellaini played for Everton, he terrorized United. I have to say, on numerous occasions, I said I'd love to have him in my team. Fellaini had a buyout clause in his contract, I believe, for £27 million. United spent £31 million on him. Now, there's bad business decisions. A last-minute transfer. I think Moyes um, under pressure having to bring somebody in. Um, and yes, there have been players that have come that haven't featured. Most disappointing, Angel de Maria, mm. Falcao. You know, these are, are world-class players. Pardon me? I said, I was saying Memphis Depay. Memphis Depay, world-class players that didn't kick on. But you know, you're not guaranteed when a player comes that he's going to kick on. We've seen this with United strikers of yesteryear. Um, these may not be familiar names to you, but... Gary Bertels, Peter Davenport, Alan Brazil. These were all guys that scored lots of goals for their previous clubs, couldn't kick on at United. And how often do we see a player coming in, doesn't do well, moves to another club, does brilliantly over there? Mm -hmm. Or the man a new manager comes, he shifts the policies, the player doesn't fit in. And the one that was really sad for me is Ibrahimovic was a breath of fresh air at United. He was absolutely fantastic. It really reminded me a little bit of the signing of Eric Cantona. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, he picked up that bad injury and that put paid to his time at United. And that, was, that really was an element of bad luck. 
the other good thing about him is he was the number one personality. So it kept Pogba out of the limelight a little bit. And that attitude also, you, I think that brashness was needed at Absolutely. my new at that time. Uh, but, but also, I just want to touch on, you know, it, it was a big European phenomenon back in the days when you look at when uh, legendary coaches were coaching, when Ancelotti was still getting his colours in the Italian league uh, with AC yes. and Juventus, the position of a director of football, something what, which was a bit foreign to the English game. Um, yes. I think I really read. I remember reading around that David Dean at Arsenal was one of the premier uh, positions that one of the premier people personalities that held such a position where the coach wasn't the main guy bringing in players, talking to players before they've signed. That, that, um, that is that is correct. Yes. And you've also mentioned the gentleman who left at uh, the same time Fergie did. Why have Man United taken so long to? Number one, appoint as a director of sport, a sporting director, um, and number two, or create a, a, a position for someone who's within. Because with many clubs, the sporting directors come from the scouting department. They come from yeah. the uh, from the data. You've mentioned that football yeah. right now is all about statistics and yeah. data. They they yeah. can just easily pick one guy from from there. Sure. You know, sure. um, why why the hesitation? Yeah. Well, funny enough, the head of scouting at United at the moment is a chap called Marcel Bout, who came along with Louis van Gaal. Mm -hmm. Now, it's said, and again, I don't say this on any reliable authority, but Mourinho was um, not in favour of getting a director of football. You have to question, the, uh, the club extended Mourinho's contract, and then when he wanted a player like Harry Maguire, who at the time was £60 million, pounds, they, the, the board turned him down. So I think that a, a lot of the reason has potentially been a bit of power hunger from the board itself. That, mm. that is my impression, but I can't say that with any reliable authority. Understood. Uh, but with regards to that, what, what, what is your belief? What's the perfect uh, sporting director? Um, for example, are you, do you want a personality like Monchi? I'm not sure if you're familiar with the Monchi, yeah. who was yeah. at uh, Sevilla, Roma, he yeah. just recently left yeah. Roma. Yeah. Um, you, do you, would you be happy with someone like that? Or are you happier with someone like Sven Melistant, who had a bit of a, a stint at Arsenal where he recruited some very young, good young players, but then also yes. had to leave because he wasn't offered the director of football role and it was offered to Raul Sanheli. Uh, are you more for a scouting man like Melistant or more for Monchi or Raul Sanheli, who is a personality and negotiation maestro? Yeah, I'm, I'm in favour of two things. Somebody mm -hmm. who understands the game and somebody who understands what Man United are all about. And when one looks at directors of football around the world at the moment, the one for me that would potentially be a good fit at United is Edwin van der Sar. Mm -hmm. um, he's done good things at Ajax. Very, very Edwin good things. One of his previous clubs and United are one of his clubs. Mm -hmm. Um, I also thought at one stage that Mike Phelan might take on that role, but I don't know if he's qualified enough to take on that role, but he certainly got reasonable credentials. But I'd rather have somebody behind the scenes than some flamboyant character. Hmm. And in terms of negotiations, that's where you need a strong board. Um, United are a very, very wealthy club. Um, of course, the owners are divisive in terms of there are a lot of people who'd like to see them go. Um, but it's a complex, it's a complex web of intricacy, which quite honestly, I don't particularly understand. And I'm not sure where it will end up. And at this moment in time, I'm not sure when 
we're going to see football again. Mm, mm, mm. Which which makes everything all the more difficult. Uh, I think one other thing that you did mention was when you're talking about uh, Ibrahimovic and his tinted man, you was Pogba and getting Pogba yeah. out of the limelight. I don't have any question about Pogba, but I just want to say his name and you just tell me what are the thoughts that come to mind. There I go, Pogba. Right, so there, there are a couple of things that come to mind. Firstly, he's joining United as a 16-year-old. And I remember them speaking very highly of him back then. Um, him leaving the club to go to Juventus because Fergie didn't pick him for a particular game, a game I remember very well, um, a game which affected the league that season. Um, Blackburn were bottom of the league. United were challenging for top spot. Wayne Rooney was dropped for the game because he um, had shown some ill discipline. And we lost 3-2. And he picked players like Fabio De Silva ahead of Pogba, whose nose was out of joint. And that saw him wanting to leave. And I think very much fueled by his agent. Of course, he went on to Juventus and he performed fantastically there. But he was surrounded by players like Pirlo and Vidal in a league-winning team. He couldn't go wrong. Coming back to United was like the prodigal son returning. But unfortunately, he came back to a team that was probably mediocre at best. And we are seeing lots of things in the media, but we're never hearing from him. Mm -hmm. So... I don't believe most of these things. I do think his agent is a bad guy in terms of he fuels the fire. And I think that Pogba, again, I don't say this on any authority, I think Pogba will sign a new contract at United. I think that United are a better team with Pogba in the team. A lot of people think that he's disruptive. Um, that's their opinion. But what I'm a little bit disappointed about, and it's at a bit of a tangent, if you look at three long-term injuries that United have had this season, McTominay, Pogba and Rashford, mm -hmm. all of them were allowed to play carrying injuries. And you can throw Matic into that equation as well. They all played carrying injuries. And I would question the medical department on there. I'm not a sports physician, so again, I don't say that with authority. But Pogba was playing carrying an injury, which resulted in him needing surgery. And that's why he's been out for so long. But the thought of seeing Pogba playing together with Bruno Fernandes, that excites me. And I hope we do get to see that combination. I'm sure you, you can't. You were telling me the other day that you are going to bed quite, uh, quite late. And I'm sure that's the, one of the things that's keeping you up at night. You know, there's those <laughs> long through balls from Pogba um, to, to, to Fernandes to run on to. But I wanted also to just talk, talk to you about that. Um, of course, let's say everything is fixed. I also, like you, believe Man you are a better team with Pogba on the pitch. I also, like you, do believe that Pogba is not as disruptive as the media would love to sell. I think he's a man that has um, a bad apple for an agent an agent who wants to be the main character in whatever movie will be playing at that time. Um, and I it's agree. not only in, in Pogba's career, but across most of his, most of his clients, he has... Um, and it's also a bit scary that a lot of uh, younger players still trust that agent to represent, uh, to represent them. Uh, but he seems to get the job done um, money-wise, but it's just the other stuff that he comes with. For me, I would say a midfield three, if you're playing 4-4-3, which is... Uh, my, one of my news favorable uh, formations. Solskjaer likes it a lot. So we've got Pogba and Fernandez. Who is anchoring your midfield? Fred or McTominay? I've had a lot of um, interesting conversations with my new fans about that one. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have to say that Fred is an improved player this season. But for me, Fred is not a world-class midfielder. He may become one. And the talk is that Fred was a signing forced upon Mourinho. He didn't particularly want him. I don't know that. Mm-hmm. McTominay is a player who's grown into the role. My friends who live in Manchester who have watched McTominay since he was in the youth team tell me that he had the most unbelievable growth spurt a few years ago. He's really he's become a big unit, and I think he understands what being a Man United player is. So certainly if we're looking at a midfield three, for me, Pogba and Fernandes would be definite choices. And you could, depending on the opposition, I think if you needed a bit more steel, um, I'd go with McTominay, possibly a bit more creativity with Fred. Um, but, you know, in a squad, you need a whole bunch of midfielders. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've got a couple of midfielders that are aging and we've got a couple of midfielders, whilst I don't like saying negative things, we've got a couple of midfielders that I think are not nearly good enough to be playing for United. Understood. Uh, I'm, I'm a very big McTominay fan. I really think he's. I love his composure on the ball. I love how he he reminds me of Matic uh, at his peak at Chelsea. Big yep. guy who and... seems to always land into crunch tackles, but really gets sent off. Yeah, very much so. I, I and I, I forgot about Matic. I'd certainly have him in the mix. But you know, in a squad, you need at least eight midfielders. Hello. Yes, I'm still here, Doc. Yeah, sorry. No, no problem. No, thank you. Thank you for, for, for that one. Um, is, is, is Ole Gunnar Solskjaer the man to take Man, U, uh, man United, your beloved club, back to the top of the Premier League? When we're doing a podcast in five years' time, I'll answer that question. <laughs> but I do think that things are looking a lot brighter for United. Mm-hmm. And at this moment in time, I would stick with Solskjaer. Of course, if we Mm -hmm. lose the next 10 games, I'll tell you that he should be fired. But I don't think changing the manager now is going to achieve anything. And results have improved. And I don't know what's going to happen going forward with respect to transfer windows. But if United can bolster the squad with a right wing, a striker, maybe another centre-back, I think we'll see another three signings possibly. And we'll see some of the so-called deadwood moved out of the club. I think we will become a force to be reckoned with again. I think your your, your previous statement will make one of my close friends, uh, Yannick, who's a very big Manchester United fan, smile. He has, for the past, I don't know how many years, been mentioning, if Solskjaer, we, I need to see Solskjaer with at least six of his own signings. He's yeah. on four right now, yeah. currently. And, and without you've mentioned, that's about yeah. six, seven. And, and he's, got, that and can he's be, got four out of four. And let, let's mm-hmm. remember also, the signing of Igalo on loan. He's been a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. And I would have expected him to be offered another one-year contract to start the club. And he, it, he reminds, reminds me of Andy Cole. Me, yeah. Um, I, you know, it's funny. I remember him as a Watford player. Um, he was a useful player. But put him in a team that he's really dying to play for, the commitment, the desire... And it reminds me a little bit of when Henrik Larsson came to play for United in 2007 for mm-hmm. a three-month period. It injected a new life into the team. 
No, he he he's he's uh, he's very brave. He hurries defenders, like I'm saying, like what Andy Cole yeah. uh, used to do. Um, he's he's just a problem. He's just he's just a problem. He he keeps you busy. So it'll be interesting. Um, I I I really love backing our African players, and I would love to see him get another year. Um, in in at Old Trafford. Um. And uh, I wanted us to just talk a little bit about about the ownership, the Glazers. What are your thoughts over the of their ownership over the last uh, over the last couple of years? Yeah, well, you see, there are two ways of looking at it. When Fergie was there, Fergie consistently said he never had a problem with the Glazers. Now, I don't know if this was just talk because they were paying his salary. I have no idea. Um, they've made a lot of money out of the club, but you know, Man United is a cash cow. Um, it's usually on the Forbes list, uh, usually as um, uh, the most wealthy club in the world, although that slipped a little bit of late. But um, it's earned them a fortune of money. I'm, I'm not clued up on financial matters. So mm-hmm. when you talk to, when I talk to my um, fellow fans who are actuaries and things like that, the feeling is that they've plundered a lot of money out of the club without putting money back into the club. But if you tot up the fees spent on all the transfers, I mean, it's a fortune of money. Mm-hmm. Um, the old traditional thing was, you know, Man United are the people's club. It's a club of the people. You know, that's, those days are gone. Um, these the clubs, look, these are individually owned, but, you know, we see oil-rich countries owning clubs now. We see wealthy families owning clubs so again, I, I don't think I'm I'm in a position to have an opinion on that. I really don't know. Um, can't answer that too well, I'm afraid. I would say um, I would say uh, with I struggle with American owners in um, in football because um, I do know the Glazers own. Uh, the Tampa Bay uh, Buccaneers, Buccaneers as well. Correct. Yes. Um, they're like also um, Stan Kroenke, who owns Arsenal um, and the Los Angeles Rams yeah. in, the, in the NFL. Yeah. I, I feel that they're, they're a bit detached, not only from the sport, but uh, from, you know, the intricacies that come with football yes. and the intricacies that come with, uh, with owning a football club. And I feel that they always fall a bit short. And one thing, if I could say, if I would ever meet either of those two uh, billionaire families, would be to just suggest that get someone who knows the club in and around. For me, I always thought Sir Alex, uh, sorry, not Sir Alex, but rather Arsene Wenger would get a seat at the table, an honorary yes. seat at the table, just to try and be be there and you know answer any questions that are that are tough. Yes, you can have a lot of guys who know football at the lower levels, but at the top, you really need someone who can convince the owners. Uh, or even teach the owners about how to to run a, a great football yes. club. So, I think so. I think you answered that question far more eloquently than I did. And <laughs> I think if you look at American owners, for them, the financial bottom line is what's most important. If you look mm-hmm. at the supporters, it's results and trophies that are the most important. I suppose results and trophies beget finances, but mm-hmm. I would agree, and certainly. Um, on the side of Arsenal, if I may make a comment, I think that Arsene Wenger was a fantastic manager for them. And I was most surprised that he wasn't offered a seat at the table. I think he deserved one. I'm still surprised that he yeah. wasn't offered a seat at the table or a trophy or a stand named after him. But I'm sure it will come in due yeah. course. And um, ironically, um, mm-hmm. Arsene Wenger and Fergie, I'm told, never shared a glass of wine after a game. 
They were they got on better in latter years, but of course you'll remember the Arsenal. Of course you'll remember the Arsenal era of the Invincibles and what was called Pizzagate at Old Trafford. Um, Fabregas. You know the the tremendous rivalry. Arsenal were United's biggest rivals for a number of seasons. No, it was it was an interesting time in the game, um, and I was actually laughing a little bit when everyone was in awe. I'm not sure if you saw it. There was a press conference at one of these uh, player manager colors where Klopp and uh, Pep Guardiola shared some pleasantries and everyone was up and, you know, laughing and loving how, and everyone seemed to paint a picture that it's the first time it's happened. I also did, I do remember seeing a clip some years ago. I did see it where Fergie and uh, Wenger were sitting uh, at um, on a stage side by side and exchanging a few pleasantries sure. as well sure. uh, and good and good comedy. But I'm sure, you know, when, when it comes to, 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 to the way that they competed and the way that they wanted their teams to compete, you cannot really be friendly. Um, Absolutely. 100%. In, you know, at, at war. And, but they, they did give us some great entertainment yeah. if, uh, if, over the years. Would you indulge me? There's just something I want to come back to on Fergie. Okay. And that, and that is Fergie had the ability of creating a fantastic team, dismantling it, and then creating another one. And if you look at his tenure, you had the double winning sides of you had the double winning side of '94, which many think was his best team because there were a lot of hard men in that team. You know the likes of Bruce and Pallister and Mark Hughes and Paul Ince and Brian Robson. You then had the class of '92 and the youngsters coming through to win the treble, and then you had that team being dismantled and the next crop coming through and winning the league several times so you know that that is a fantastic thing that he was able to to achieve and i i i have a feeling that you've mentioned it because we've touched on wenger and the invincibles and how we could never replicate the success once he let some of those senior figures uh, out of the door yeah yeah they you you can't have sentiment when somebody reaches his sell-by date a good example you know brian robson who for me was the greatest captain that united have ever had and would be an automatic choice in my all-time United eleven. although, you know, many will say Roy Keane ahead of him. But um, Man United in the FA Cup final, 1994, Robson didn't even make the bench. It was his time to go. No sentiment sent him on his way. And that's how Fergie worked. He was a smooth operator with that. Um, I want us to talk a little bit about a tweet. There's a tweet you posted on the 3rd of April where you tweeted your all-time 11. Um, uh, let me just remind you, you had Schmeichel and Go, um, on uh, as the fullbacks. You had uh, Brian and Erwin in the middle of the defense. You had Ferdinand and Storm. Um, then you had uh, Edwards and Cantona in the middle of the park. Best and Robson on either flank, and uh, the front two was comprised of Ronaldo and Van Nistelrooy. Um, your subs were quite interesting and showing the depth and quality at Manu over the years. Uh, Van der Sar, Neville, uh, I'm not sure which Neville, but I think it's Gary. Gary yeah. uh, Vidic, Keane, Scholes, Rooney and Giggs. Would, would, now that I'm saying it to you, would you change anything about your starting eleven? Well, you know, how do you pick a best eleven for Man United? It's absolutely impossible. It's difficult. And I, think that a, I think that a fairer thing to do is to pick them in different eras, to pick them mm-hmm. in the Busby era, in the era between Busby and Ferguson, and in the Ferguson era. Of course, in the Ferguson era, you don't have George Best. You'd have um, Ryan Giggs. You don't have Roger Byrne 
at left back, who was the captain of the ill-fated Posby Babes that died in the crash. You'd have Dennis Irwin at left back. You'd have Gary Neville at right back. Many would say um, Ferdinand and Vidic to partner each other because they were such a good combination. And, of course, Duncan Edwards, um, regarded by many, having lost his life at age 21, regarded by many as being the greatest player that ever played for United. So it's an impossible task, that. If you, look at, if you look at goal scorers, the two most prolific goal scorers in United's history were Van Nistelrooy and Tommy Taylor. They both averaged approximately 0.67 of a goal per game. No, it's, it's the depth. The depth is amazing uh, when you when you when you look at it through through the eyes of someone who's followed the club over an extended period of but, time, as you have one, done. One has to say, if you look at all the if you look at all the clubs, the top eleven of all the big clubs makes for unbelievable reading. I mean, they've been magnificent players over the years. True. And True. how do you compare a player of the fifties to a player of the modern day? It's very very difficult. It's 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 it's, it's uh... To just quote you, it's difficult to compare hard rock to some of the cotton candy that we're seeing on the pitch these days. Eh? Absolutely. <laughs> I, I refer to many of them as a bunch of overpaid prima donnas today. Yeah, some, some do tend to behave like that. It's, it's, it's very tough to... I would have really loved to see Fergie with this crop of the current players that, that are around now. Yeah. Um, these guys that if they come out on the 60th minute, they're sulking. Uh, throwing gloves on the floor and yeah. not shaking the manager's hand. It would have been interesting to see the man in, in his element with, with such. But I want us to close uh, with, uh, with... Tell us about Gary Bailey. Right. So um, I'm, I'm proud to say that Gary's a friend of mine. As I mentioned, I met him when um, I went to Manchester for the first time in 1983. Now, Gary um, went across to the UK... Um, and he got into the Man United team in 1978. From 1978 to 1986, he was the first team goalkeeper and he was an immovable object. Unfortunately, sustained a very bad knee injury in training with the England squad. He did get a couple of games for England, but he got a very bad knee injury. And it curtailed severely his career in the UK. I think I'm right in saying he had to quit when he was 28 in the UK. And he came back to South Africa and was able to play a couple of seasons for Kaiser Chiefs. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing about Gary is I've socialized with him on numerous occasions. A bigger gentleman you'll never find. If somebody comes over, asks for a photo, asks for an autograph, never turns them down. And he, he's an honest fellow in as much as he says to me what's a great leveler is if he stands on the forecourt of Old Trafford on match day, people walk past him, they don't know who he is. But that is not true because that pub that I mentioned, the Bishop Blaze, a couple of years ago, um, we were in that pub together, my family, Gary's family together. And on Gary arriving in that pub, the whole pub started singing, there's only one Gary Bailey. So he's well known. Gary played 375 games for United. Only Peter Schmeichel, David De Gea and Alex Stepney played more games than that. And what he's done following football is he's carved out a fantastic career for himself. He's nobody's fool. He got a university degree and he's gone on to get an MBA. He's a fantastic pundit. And I've heard motivational talks. In fact, I heard him give a talk at Gibbs Business School over here. And the Mm -hmm. talk he modeled 
was on um, Alex Ferguson and the winning way. And um, an anecdote about Gary, I once got a phone call from Gary. It shows you how footballers remember certain things about their careers. I got a phone call from him. He was going to give a talk at the business school in Hong Kong. And his, his um, request of me, can you give me some decent stories revolving around my time at Man United? <laughs> that's, that's Gary for you. And he was, uh, you know, he played in a team that was in transition. He won um, FA Cup winners medals in 1983 and 1985. Of course, um, we remember the 1979 FA Cup final. Um, that was a terrible day for me because it was actually played on my 21st birthday. United were 2-0 down in the 86th minute against your team, Arsenal. Um, you will remember that Brian Talbot and Frank Stapleton scored the goals for Arsenal. And United equalised in normal time. Gordon McQueen and Sammy McElroy. And after United got the equaliser, Arsenal went downfield and they scored the winning goal, which was scored by Alan Sunderland. And um, that was not a good moment for Gary or myself. And we have consistently teased him that we lost the final because of him. But that is not the case. But mm -hmm. the man is God's gentleman. Thank you. Thank you. I know he's a dear friend of yours and what a, what a great way to close um, just talking about him. Any final thoughts uh, that you want to leave me with? Um, the one, probably the one thing, the one player that we didn't mention during this was Ronaldo. He, he was mm. the only one that didn't come up. And there's, there's an example of taking raw talent and turning him into a world-class player. There's an example of somebody who worked so hard in training, um, you know, one of, um, one of the greatest players in the world. If, you know, again, it's divisive, Ronaldo or Messi, who's better? Who cares? We're privileged to watch both of them. But, you know, as a United fan, we've been just privileged to see players like this over the years cropping up on a fairly regular basis, although, um, you know, there's a bit of a gap between them. And if I, if I look back over the decades, you know, we've been privileged to watch the likes of George Best, Ryan Giggs, Ronaldo, Cantona, Van Nistelrooy. You know, the names roll off the tongue so many. And, you know, I think that what football does is football galvanizes people. You yes. meet somebody in a crowd, the guy can be a mass murderer, but if he supports the same team as you, you become brothers for that particular period of time. And when your team puts in a good performance, you know, when you go to work on Monday morning, um, there's a spring in your step. Your chest is out a little bit, as opposed to if you've just lost 8-2 at Old Trafford, you kind of cower into your workspace the next day. I didn't go to class on Monday uh, <laughs> after that game or Tuesday. <laughs> So, so thank you very much for, for, for bringing that memory back up to me. Uh, Barry, Doc, it's uh, been an absolute pleasure hosting you today and thank having you. a chat around your beloved club. Um, I'll just repeat, your Twitter handle is at Doc United. You are the chairman of the Manchester United Supporter Club South Africa. And I hope that uh, this podcast goes as far and wide because I feel like you've given me and the listeners uh, a wealth of your knowledge around the club, uh, a club that you love, a club that uh, you have grown with uh, through the good and the bad days. Um, and thank you so, so much for joining Composure in the Box today. My, my absolute pleasure. And I would just hope that 
in no ways have I come across as being conceited in any way. I absolutely appreciate the privilege that I've had of getting so close to so many of these people over the years. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. That should be the last of your fears. Thank you so much once again, Doctor. Thank you. All the best to you and your family. Stay safe. Same to you. Kind regards to 